This is the word of the Lord. Give it your reverent attention um, as I read to you 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 3, reading through verse 10. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppress, excuse me, who suppose that religion is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we thank you for... Your word, it is your word. While Paul was the human author of 1 Timothy, you are the one who ultimately have written this. Uh, It is here for our profit uh, and for your glory as we hear it uh, and take it to heart and apply it. We ask that you would be glorified through our hearing and our application of this portion of your word. Would you please grant me the unction that I need to be useful to you and to be a blessing to your people. Lord Jesus, would you please preach for us this morning? Uh, Would you be our preacher? Uh, And we ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen. Kids, you know this, uh, what I'm about to tell you, I'm sure, but um, there's a right way and a wrong way uh, to do things, right? Right? If you want to uh, catch a butterfly, generally speaking, you're not going to use um, um, a a thin stick, a spoon, to catch a butterfly, or or a thin stick to catch a butterfly. You want to catch something. You want to use something that has, you know, that's wider and that can kind of grab the butterfly without hurting the butterfly. You don't want to hurt the butterfly. Uh, but you don't use a spoon to catch a butterfly or a, or a twig. You use something else, maybe a, a, a cardboard box as it's flying away, you know, put it over it. That's much more effective, right? That's the right way, not a, not a spoon or a fork. Yeah, you don't want to use a fork. Um, if you uh, want to, um, oh, I don't know, uh, climb, uh, climb up a tree um, that's... Uh, where the branches, the first branch is pretty high and it's pretty hard to reach. Uh, actually, you can't reach it, but you want to get up in that tree. You don't use a uh, you don't use a tennis ball to try to get up in the tree. You don't, or you or you wouldn't want to use a beach ball either because you stand on the beach ball and you're liable to go out. Whoops, you're liable to do something like that or worse. No, you want to use a ladder, right? A step ladder or something like that that you can kind of help yourself get up to that branch that you want to grab a hold of. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things. Um, Well, there is a right way and a wrong way to try to have a relationship with God. The right way is the Christian way. I'm going to call it the Christian religion. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Every other way that attempts to have a relationship with God or be 
right with God, other than Christianity, is a wrong way. There's only one way to God. Jesus, you remember, you, you can quote this, right, children? Jesus said in John 14, 6, what did he say? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one, but through me. That's what Christianity teaches. And there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ, by trusting in him as our Savior and as our Lord. And this passage um, eloquently makes this that that point by way of contrast with false teaching. And I'll get to my two points here in a minute. But first I want to talk about the word religion that I just used. I, said, I talked about the Christian religion a moment ago. Uh, the word religion has become a bad word among many evangelical Christians in recent decades. Um, you'll regularly hear Christians say on the radio and whatnot, uh, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, while it is true, as I just indicated with you children, that those who embrace the Christian faith do indeed have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it does not follow from that point that Christianity is not a religion. It is a religion. Merriam-Webster, its dictionary gives as one definition of the word religion, quote, a personal set or institutionalized system of religious, and I'll explain that in a minute, of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Let me say that again. A personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. With the word religious meaning, and I also got this from Merriam-Webster, Relating to or manifesting faithful devotion to an acknowledged ultimate reality or deity. Faithful devotion to a reality or deity, ultimate reality or deity. So by this definition of religion and religious, biblical Christianity is very much a religion. As are such belief systems uh, as Mormonism, deism, Roman Catholicism, pantheism, Buddhism, the churches of Christ, Christian science, and so on. Those are all religions, as is Christianity. I will be using the word religion in this sermon, in this manner, uh, um, as a, a personal set, or more to the point here for with Christianity, an institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices, and it's our uh, uh, system of belief, if you will. And I'm going to be using that word several times in this sermon. The reason I've chosen to use the English word religion, by the way, in my two sermon points, is because one of the ways of understanding and translating a Greek word that is used three times by Paul in this in this uh, passage, one of the ways of translating the word in the passage is religion. Another way that is used each time by the New American Standard and by most other uh, better translations is the word godliness or piety or devotion. But it can be translated religion, and in one place in this passage, it should be translated not as godliness but as religion. I'll indicate that when the time comes. Um, but I've chosen the word religion because the word godliness always has positive connotations. Um, and three out of four times, or two out of three times, it does have positive connotations here, but the one time, uh, it, it has less positive connotations, which is why the word religion is a better choice on that point um, in, at that time. It's actually in verse 5, uh, where it should be translated religion rather than godly. So that brings me to the two points, and they are simple. First, we're going to look at the religion of Paul's opponents, and then we're going to look at the religion of Paul which is the religion of Jesus. Y'all already knew that. So, the religion of Paul's opponents. We're going to talk about this first. A fair amount of what Paul has been uh, has already written prior to this point in this letter uh, has been devoted to the topic of false teachers who had been seeking to persuade the believers in Ephesus, where, where Timothy was ministering, 
seeking to persuade, persuade believers to adopt their religious views, their religious interpretations of that of the false teachers. Uh, they were trying to pick off Christians, if you will, and, and bring them into their uh, sphere of influence. Paul's first attack on these wolves in sheep's clothing is found in chapter 1, verses 3 through uh, 11. And there is a verbal connection between 1, 3 and, uh, and verse uh, 3 of chapter 6. Uh, I won't say anything more about that, but it clearly it links chapter 6 to chapter 1 there in the, in the, in the first uh, verse that we're looking at, verse 3. So that, his first attack is back in chapter 1, starting in verses 3, going through verse 11. He then attacks the false teachers again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We won't bother looking at that. Well, today's sermon here, starting in verse 3 of chapter 6, this is his third and final denunciation of these false teachers. Um, and he refers to their teaching as a different doctrine. Let's read verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, uh, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and he goes on. By different doctrine, Paul means different from the doctrine which the believers in Ephesus had believed, had been had heard from Paul and from Timothy and perhaps from others, uh, and had come to believe in, uh, the doctrine taught by these other men, these heretics, and that's what they were, was a different, it was different from the true doctrine, in other words, of Christianity. Uh, he says that this doctrine of theirs, of the false teachers, uh, does not agree with sound words. Sound here means correct or uh, true. And the correct or true uh, words that Paul is referring to here are, as he says right there in the in the very verse itself, are the do, are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the Messiah. Uh, and also, by the way, those would also include not only the words of Jesus, but also the words uh, of those who authoritatively interpreted what Jesus said and did, who were His apostles, including Paul Himself. Um, and uh, that doctrine that had been disseminated first through the apostles across much of the Roman world by this point in time. Uh, so those are the sound words, the sounds, the words of Jesus and of Paul and the apostles. But he then further characterizes the teachings of Jesus and his the apostles as doctrine which promotes godliness. You heard it there at the last part of verse three, and with doctrine conforming to godliness. The different and therefore false doctrine taught by these deceitful men did no such thing as bring about conformity to godliness. Now, in spite of the fact that much of probably what these men taught in order to try to sneak it by Christians uh, without unbeknownst to them and get them to buy into it, much of what they taught probably resembled the teachings of Jesus and of the apostles, including Paul. Uh, but at key points, it differed and made it heresy, made it false. Uh, and one of the things, one of the characteristics of their teaching, the false teacher's teaching, is that unlike Christian teaching, it did not promote godliness or piety or devotion, as defined by God, by the way. Even though it may have appeared uh, at first glance, when they looked at these, when somebody might have looked at the lives of these false teachers and their followers, it might have appeared that they were godly. This is true today, of uh, today's sub-Christian belief systems, which claim to be Christian. Mormons, lovely people. Talked to a couple of them about a month and a half ago at the car wash. Tried to get a conversation going, that didn't happen. But anyway, um, Mormons outwardly look very Christian. They look more Christian than a lot of Christians do, sad to say. Uh, Mormonism resembles Christianity. Jehovah's Witness, very nice people, most of them who come to your door. Salvation by works communions, which are not Christian, but claim Christianity, and I won't uh, be more specific than that right now. But they also produce people or outward effects that resemble true Christian behavior and conduct and speech. They may resemble it. But what it is, is a man-made counterfeit of the truth. 
a counterfeit which God detests. And why does he detest it? For a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't spring from a heart of true love for him, because he's not the object of the false, uh, uh, the false worshippers, uh, worship. But also because the counterfeits, the counterfeit lives, uh, and godliness of those who are claiming Christianity but aren't truly Christian ultimately, their lives are deceitful to others. It, they, they lure people away. Mormons lure people into their communion because they are so nice. So, which Christians should be, is nice people. Kind, compassionate, uh, friendly. And uh, they, they do that really well. And they lure a lot of unsuspecting souls, probably who grew up in Christian churches, away from Christian churches by their by their their uh, positive presentation of themselves. And God hates that, folks. Because it, it's, a, it's a bait. And it's, it's designed to kill people spiritually. Or keep them dead spiritually. And it produces this false religion, this salvation by works religion or, 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 or false God religion uh, that might claim Christianity, it, it ends up not only being false in terms of its content, but it produces rotten fruit. And I've already, I've already indicated this, but let's read what he says uh, specifically in verses 4 and following. So I'll back up to verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine... Conforming to godliness, that's the same doctrine he uh, just talked about, that were Jesus', Jesus truths, words. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Paul, in verse 3 there, as I say, he's renewing his discussion about the spiritual dangers faced by the Ephesian believers uh, under uh, Timothy's charge. And he opens verse 3 there with a generic singular pronoun, anyone, uh, that the New American Standard translates as anyone. I think most of the other translations that most of us use also says, if anyone. And that's kind of a generic singular, right? Uh, and while he opens it with that word, it's clear that Paul has multiple specific false teachers in mind, even though he uses the generic singular there in verse 3. And we know this because in verse 5, he transitions to using the plural men in verse 5, and constant friction between men of depraved mind. He's talking about those false teachers. So that's who he has in mind. He has specific individuals. And he says, what do they look like? What, what is, what has their religion produced within them? Or, and that, that is visible outwardly to others? Well, first of all, he says they're conceited. They are, they are, uh, full of themselves. They, uh, and this fondness for themselves, uh, uh, excessive fondness for themselves and their own opinions and ways makes it easy for them, because they are prideful, to dismiss what God's Word actually teaches in favor of their preferred, heretical, fanciful notions. They like them better, and what I like goes. And pride is what allows people to do, to do that. I like my interpretation better. I like word of faith doctrine better than what the scripture teaches, for example, which is heresy. I think you all know that. Pride. And I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect it's the case, that pride is probably the sin which characterizes false teachers in today's world as a group more than any other sin. Yes, there's sexual sin. Yes, there's a lot of other sins. But I'll bet you, for virtually... Or the vast majority of them, if not all of them, they are profoundly proud individuals. 
pride is very common among heretics because they think they know what's best. And God's word, God's word is not really, doesn't really inform what they're going to, what they're going to believe. They are. He goes on and he says, writes that these false teachers understand nothing. What he means here is nothing about true religion. Nothing about true Christianity. Nothing about the gospel. The same can be said today of the Kenneth Copelands, the Joyce Myers and the Joel Olsteins of our, uh, of our uh, television age. They understand nothing about the true religion. They peddle poison. Paul indicates that those whom he is opposing here have a morbid interest, a twisted interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. And by the way, this is not... Don't read this as, well, I shouldn't be careful about digging into my scriptures and trying to understand everything that God is saying carefully. This is not... This is not saying you, you need to fly at 40,000 feet when you read the scriptures all the time. That's not the point. He's, he's saying it's, it's, it's perverse stuff. It's twisted stuff. Words that, that, are, that are ridiculous to be disputing about is what Paul is talking about here. And uh, this is exactly what the Christian, I use the word Christian in quotes, the Christian cult religions of today's world do. Mormons have a bizarre interpretation of Paul's reference to baptism of the dead. Now, I don't understand what baptism of the dead exactly means either. But they they come up with a fantastic, weird, bizarre, crazy notion which they make a big deal about. Jehovah's Witness erroneously insists that God must be referred to by the name Jehovah. It's the only name that's proper. Twisted, controversial, and also wrong, by the way. Way wrong. Uh, and again, they just, they got fixate on it. And they, uh, the other things, the, the, the things that are known to, to us widely about what God's name was and what it wasn't, they ignore. Paul says that these False teachers' erroneous views, coupled with their sense of self-importance and their perverse love of controversy, has produced within them evil fruit in their own lives and probably also in the lives of those who embraced their false doctrines, namely the fruits of envy, uh, of, of strife, or which means quarreling, um, abusive language, so slander, uh, came from these men, uh, evil suspicions, they were suspicious of other people, uh, apparently uh, all the time, and there was constant friction among them. They, they, they warred amongst themselves, apparently, as well as with, uh, with other folks um, because of their, uh, their, uh, their lack of knowledge of the truth or acknowledgement of the truth. So it bore bitter fruit, poison fruit, um, in the lives of these false teachers. And... He says there at the end of verse 5 that these, this sub-Christian religion of these men was being used by them as a way of obtaining gain. He says there at the end of verse 5, I'll start uh, at the beginning of it, and constant friction between men of depraved, of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that religion is a means of gain. And he is talking here about personal financial gain. Does that sound vaguely familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And this is why, by the way, I emphasize the importance of translating the word there in verse 5 that, that I just read to you, who supposed that, not that godliness, godliness isn't a means of great gain. Uh, these men aren't talking about true godliness, these false teachers. They're talking about, uh, they think their religion, their version of Christianity, which isn't Christian at all, that's a means of feathering their nest financially. And it's not godliness. There's nothing godly about that, about their religion, because it, it deviates markedly from that which is uh, true, and therefore it is heretical, even though there may be grains of truth in it. So, that was the religion of Paul's opponents. 
Let's look at Paul's religion, the religion of Paul. Well, it's very unlike that of those whom he is speaking against and denouncing in this in this letter. Unlike the doctrine of the false teachers, Paul's religion, first of all, did not differ in the slightest from what Jesus himself taught. Thus, Paul's religion and that of the other apostles, it was, unlike that of the false teachers, it was sound, it was correct, it was true, it conformed to the truth, and therefore it was reliable, it could be banked on, it could be trusted in and believed without danger. Paul's religion was true Christianity because he was merely um, uh, repeating and explicating, unpacking further uh, with divine inspiration to do so, the words of Christ that Jesus taught during his time, uh, uh, during his public ministry. This could not be said of these false teachers that were afflicting the Ephesian believers uh, in Asia Minor. Their views, unlike true Christianity, if believed, were probably damnable. I say probably. Uh, a certain degree of false truth can be believed, uh, depending on what it, the nature of that truth, and not uh, cause one to be damned. Uh, but uh, you can, because all of us have error probably in some area. Even, uh, even unbeknownst to us. Uh, and it is therefore erroneous and false. Um, but we're, if we're trusting in Christ, uh, the true Christ, and truly trusting in Him alone, we're still going to heaven. Uh, and so some of these folks may have been uh, somewhat uh, duped by these false teachers, but uh, ultimately we're still clinging to Christ truly. Um, but uh, wouldn't have had any assurance of that if they were believing what these false teachers were espousing. Anyway, Paul's religion was not uh, in that way. It was, it was Jesus' religion. And also, unlike the teaching of the false teachers, Paul's religion uh, promotes true Christian piety. It tr- promotes true godliness in the one who believes it, as is evidenced again by verse 6. So in verse 5 he said, the false teachers suppose that godliness, or excuse me, that religion is a means of gain. But then he says in verse 6, but godliness, that's the same word as I just translated as religion at the end of verse 5, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Paul's religion promoted godliness in the person who held to it. Again, I just indicated that the, the word there is the very same word used in verse 5, but it should be translated two different ways. Because you can't call anything that the, the, the uh, false teachers uh, were advocating godliness, true godliness. Uh, but Paul's religion, of course, was true godliness and did promote true godliness. Biblical truth, you see, when embraced by the heart of a man or a woman or a child, it necessarily... Uh, produces change in the way a person speaks and acts and thinks. It will produce change. Christianity is not mere intellectualism. Yes, it espouses and it rests on propositional truth. Truths, true statements of, of what is real and what is right and what is true. Our, our religion rests on it, but, but it is not mere because Satan is, is orthodox. Satan is orthodox. He knows the truth. And he's Satan. Something, one has to lay hold of by faith the Savior that's offered in that truth. And then be transformed by that truth, by that Savior's Spirit in working in our lives. And so it necessarily produces more Christ-likeness over time in the person who it holds to the religion of Paul, to biblical truth. So let me ask you something, by way of application. If you profess to be a follower of Christ, I believe all of you in this room do, has your professed embrace of the Christian religion, faith, has it changed you inside and out? Does who you are now, who you are now, does it differ significantly? 
from who you were before you professed faith in Christ? Does your, or do your priorities, your speech, your behavior look considerably different from those of your non-Christian neighbors? It should. And if it doesn't, that's not a good sign. Maybe you may, if it doesn't, if you didn't answer yes, uh, even though, um, yeah, if you didn't answer yes, you may need to reevaluate your profession to be a Christian, to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Paul's religion not only unfailingly produced and produces, because it's our religion as well, real and increasing degrees of godliness in the life of the person who embraces it, but it also should lead to increasing level of contentment in the life of the adherent to it, as well as godliness. And contentment is a part of godliness, actually. Paul makes this point, uh, makes the point that we should be content in verse, uh, eight with life's essentials. Let's read that. And if we have food and clothing, he didn't mention housing there. Interesting. If we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. That's, uh, minimalism, isn't it? It says we should be content with that. The wisdom, you see, of being content with these bare essentials, they are pretty bare, is evident from a consideration of two facts. And those are found back in verse 7. First, a consideration of the fact that we are possessionless when we first come into this world at birth. And secondly, from the consideration of the fact that we won't be taking anything material with us out of this world when we die either. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take, we cannot take anything out of it either. You're not going to take any belongings with you. You're not going to pack your suitcase before you step into the coffin. Your wedding ring is not going to go with you. Grandpa's watch is not going to go with you. Neither is your Armani suit if you happen to be wearing it when they put you in the box. Anyway, <laughs> it's a reminder to myself. Um, Paul then, so contentment is, is it's something that should be growing in you with less. You should be content with less and less. And Paul warns his readers, and the Holy Spirit's warning you and me through Paul's words, of the dire consequences of having an inordinate desire for money and possessions. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich, who long, you could say, translate it, long to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The snare that Paul is probably is referring to there is likely the snare uh, a trap set by the devil himself or one of his uh, one of his uh, 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 demons um, and uh, so so Satan he sets snare he sets traps for people and the demons who work for him set traps for believers. Satan knows you, uh, your sinful longings. He's a student of us. Uh, not again, he can only be in one place, but he's got there are lots of demons out there, and they're they're students of us, and undoubtedly they share knowledge of each other with each other about what what we're doing, and so they know our longings. Satan and his horde do, the longings of our heart for riches, for ego massages, for uh, illicit sexual gratification, and other such ignoble things. They know our weak spots, our 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 sinful. Uh, uh, inclinations. And Satan or his helpers will often set a trap for us, personalized, that appeals directly to those ungodly lusts for things, power, sex, money, etc., etc., other gods. Examples of such traps that Satan might set for you or me, opportunities that present themselves to make money in an inappropriate way. 
unmonitored computer screens. Men. Those are traps. And other such things that Satan can arrange. Um, not sure how he, how he does that, but apparently he does it. Traps. Snares. Beware. Be warned. Well, Paul concludes by saying that such a desire, an inordinate desire for money and, and possessions, is the source of all sorts of evil and may cause one to wander away from the faith. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not all evil, by the way. All sorts of evil is the right translation of that. And some, by longing for it, for money and what it provides, have wandered away from the faith, perhaps to perdition, under perdition, which means they were never truly converted to begin with, and pierced themselves with many a pang. Such religion or godliness, and now I'm talking about Paul's religion, which is accompanied by increasing levels of contentment and godliness. Paul's religion, Christian religion, godliness, when accompanied by truth-nurtured contentment, is a means of great gain, Paul says. In verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. Or great profit, that word can be translated. Back in chapter 4, turn with me there briefly, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 8, he uh, identifies, Paul does, the profit or the gain which results from true godliness, true piety, true devotion to Christ and to God. He says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit or gain, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise, this is why it's profitable, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, the way to understand, I'm still looking at verse four, chapter 4, verse 8, the way to understand what Paul is referring to here in 4.8 when he speaks of a promise of life, and he talks about two different kinds of life, uh, life, uh, present life and uh, future life. But when he talks about uh, speaks of that promise of life. The, to understand that in verse 4-8, the best way to do that is to look at the only other place in the New Testament when this phrase is found, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, where the exact same phrase, you can't see it in the English very well, but you can in the Greek, the exact same phrase is found, and Paul says there in verse 1 of 2 Timothy Chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, that's the same phrase as is found in over 4.8 of chapter of uh, 1 Timothy, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The life in Christ Jesus. I want to focus on that. The promise there in, in 4.8 of 1 Timothy, of life now and in the future is that of, because of what we read in 2 Timothy 1.1, is that of life that a person has in spiritual union with Christ Jesus. That's the life. It's a life now and it's a life in the future. It's our life forever. And this is the uh, same life that Jesus himself spoke of when he said over in John chapter 10, verse 10 of famous verse that most of you probably know. The thief comes only to kill, only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came that they might have what? Life. And they might have it more abundantly. An abundant life is what he talks about there. This is the same life that Paul is talking about in 4.8 in and here in 6.6. 6. It's the same life. It comes from Jesus. He gives it. It's why he came. And it's a life which is considerably, vastly really, more than one would otherwise anticipate or expect in this world. As a citizen of this world. Apart from being a Christian. It's a far better life, in other words, than what those guys out there can ever imagine. The life that Jesus gives to his people. It is life that is beyond the normal, 
the expected. It is extraordinary is this life that we we are given by our Lord Jesus and that is a means of great gain. Wait. Uh, sorry, it is a, is a, yes, it's a means of great gain. It's that life that is spoken of in 4.8, which is uh, profitable for all things. Godliness, which is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of the present life and also of the life to come. That's the life. So, so here it is. Here's the bottom line. The great profit, the great gain that comes to the person who embraces the godliness-producing religion of Paul, Christianity, is a life that is exceedingly full. It is a life that is way more than you would otherwise anticipate or expect a life in this world to be in terms of fuller, in terms of meaning, in terms of joy, in terms of contentment, in terms of fulfillment. It is far better than could be expected by the average inhabitant of this world who hadn't bumped into Jesus. It is also a life in the world to come, folks that is way, way beyond what would otherwise be anticipated or expected by a human being living in a fallen world, even perhaps by you and me. What you gain as a result of trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord is an extraordinary Extraordinary, I should say, not extra. Extraordinary, eternal, blessed life. It is Jesus' loving gift to you. It's yours. Don't think of it as anything less than it is. It's, it's the blessed life. It's the heavenly life here on earth. Yes, there's some caveats there. It doesn't always appear to be the heavenly life. But it is. It is. You are so blessed. Count your blessings. They're yours forevermore if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, what do I mean by in Christ? If you're not trusting in the Jesus of the Bible who is 100% God and is 100% man still, and he's the only way of being forgiven by God, he's the only way of being reconciled to God, he's the only way of getting to heaven, if you're not trusting in him alone to save you from your sins, the hell, the eternal damnation that your sins deserve, if you're not trusting in him for for that forgiveness uh, and that escape from divine wrath, then you're not a Christian. And this life that I'm speaking of doesn't belong to you. In fact, you are living a life of deception and lies, a life of bondage, a life of enslavement to your own lusts and your own sinful proclivities. And you are careening headlong toward hell, where God will meet you to destroy you for eternity. And you deserve it, and I deserve it, probably more than you do. We all deserve it, though. And you'll get it if you don't flee to Jesus in faith. This is me, this is God telling you, flee to Christ in faith, if you haven't done that. He's your only hope of escaping the wrath of God forevermore. And not only do you escape the wrath of God, though, you'll get this life that I'm talking about. This this religion, which is, which is a relationship with the living God forevermore, full of blessing, but only for those who flee to Christ, who lived, died, and suffered and rose again on our behalf, all those who would trust in him. May God give you the grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reminder of this glorious religion this glorious life that is ours through that religion, which is through Jesus. We thank you that it never ends. That is the life of blessedness. It is the life of the extraordinary. It's the life of fullness and life and blessing and hope and love and uh, so many other things. 
Lord, we thank you that you are the great giver of glorious things and that you have given indescribably to us. And we are most, most thankful for your kindness. Please help us to be more thankful in coming days as we think, as we go through our week. Help us to give you thanks for all the many, many ways each day you show us kindness and and bless us with things and with joy and laughter and with uh, health and with safety and uh, with uh, loving embrace and so on. Help us to give you thanks, Lord, uh, for this great life that is ours, the Christian life. And would you please have mercy on any person who's listening to me who doesn't know you savingly. Help them to understand and see, help him to understand and see or her that they don't know you truly that their faith is merely an intellectual head knowledge or is it's a false Jesus in which they are believing and give such a one faith to trust in you Lord Jesus the only hope the God man who is the only hope of sinners we ask this in Christ's name amen let's The Lord Jesus, uh, before his ascension into glory, after his resurrection, uh, gave to the church two holy ordinances that uh, we are to observe uh, throughout the New Testament age. The first is baptism, uh, sign of, uh, uh, a sign of the covenant, a sign of initiation into the covenant community, uh, which is why, by the way, we baptize little children, because they are part of the covenant community. They are externally, at least, if not internally, and we hope they are internally in covenant with the Lord Jesus. Uh, and therefore, they belong uh, in the covenant community and should receive the covenant sign. But baptism is the first ordinance. The second holy ordinance is uh, the Lord's Supper, which we are going to be observing right now, um, and both of which are uh, instituted by the Lord Jesus in his word. Um, one of the records of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in Luke chapter 22. I'll read it starting in verse 14. <clears throat> And when the hour had come, he, the Lord Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Being the Passover, being fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The both ordinances, both the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, are sacraments, that is to say, uh, they're holy ordinances, and they are both signs and seals of the covenant of grace, we believe, the scriptures teach. Um, they are signs, uh, they are symbols, and that they, through their uh, the symbols themselves and my handling of them, um, they symbolize the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior that brought about the... Uh, covenant relationship, the gracious covenant relationship that we have with God. Um, but they are more than mere symbols. They are indeed symbols. But they are more than that. They are also seals. Uh, God's seal, if you will, on us who partake of them, uh, in which God is confirming to the believer, and only believers are to partake, uh, who know themselves to be so, and the church has acknowledged that they are, in, fe- in fact, believers, uh, God is confirming to you, Christ is confirming to you his promises to you in the gospel, that they are yes and amen in him, and that you can you can uh, be further reassured, not only by the promises that you read in the Bible, but the, by the fact that you are taking communion um, of Jesus' intention to keep those promises to you, and the fathers and the spirits, of course, as well. Uh, and you can bank on those uh, covenant promises, those gospel 
promises and find comfort and assurance in them. Because it is both a sign and a seal, um, it is also a means of grace. And we see evidence of that in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 16, I believe it is, where the cup is referred to a cup of blessing. Uh, the idea being that proper partaking of the cup, and by implication the, 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 uh, the bread as well, brings blessing. Uh, not because of the elements, but because the Holy Spirit blesses as we partake rightly uh, with understanding of what's going on. Um, and he blesses us. It's a means of sanctifying grace, as I uh, often say. This meal is not for everyone. Uh, it is Jesus' meal. He's the host, by the way, of this table, not me. Um, this meal is only for those who know themselves to be uh, Christians. Um, you need to be, if you're going to partake, you need to know that you're a Christian, uh, and you need to be baptized uh, and a member in good standing, if not of this church, of another Christian church, that is a church that believes that Jesus is the only way to God and it's only through faith in Christ that you are made right with God and reconciled to God. If you, if uh, such a church, you have received a baptism in, that, in such a communion, that's our way of knowing uh, as elders that uh, uh, have some way of uh, being uh, assured that you are actually a Christian. A church has recognized that by baptizing you. And uh, so you need to be such, please, if you're going to partake with us. You must uh, also not come if you claim to uh, be a Christian, but you are cherishing some sin in your heart that you're not willing to get rid of and confess to the Lord and turn from. You may not be a Christian. Uh, you need to consider that and not partake and consider that possibility uh, because you're, you're displaying a hard heart by not being willing to give up something that God has said, give that up. That is not... That is not appropriate for a Christian. Um, you need to take time to consider that possibility that God's wrath is still upon you in spite of what you say or what your church might say. Um, we need to be... Uh, but if you're wrestling with sin and really wish to be rid of it, though it's a struggle and perhaps you've had a bad week in some area of your life where you have wrestled with sin and lost the battle, if you will, uh, uh, but grieve over that. That's wrestling with sin. That's fighting against it. And that's okay for you to come. This is for people that are struggling. That you might receive help in your struggle from uh, Christ's Spirit uh, working in you and working through your partaking of the sacrament. So let's now pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our celebration of this meal. Lord, we come to you in your name, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that you are the host of this table. This is uh, your uh, supper, and we commune with you when we partake of this meal rightly. Would you please help us to partake rightly, Lord, all those of us who will be partaking? Would you please help us to partake with a heart that is clinging, uh, even perhaps with a mere mustard seed, but a, a truly clinging in faith to you as our only hope, uh, and looking to you for a blessing not to food in our mouths or drink in our mouths. Uh, would you please help us to partake by faith, and would you please, Lord Jesus, set aside these elements from their common everyday use unto the holy purposes for which we are about to use them, and would you please um, honor yourself as we partake of this meal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, um, and I'm going to help today.
body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. There is grape juice in the middle if you can in good conscience partake of the wine which is around the perimeter. blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we thank you for your undying love for us. We who deserve nothing but your wrath will to bless forevermore. We thank you for the uh, what you were willing to endure and did in fact endure for us. Um, uh, hell, divine fury, your own wrath, as it were, or the Father's wrath. You endured it, Lord, and quenched it, wrath that was previously directed at us. How uh, We thank you for your willingness to pay such an awful price. What love. <clears throat> we ask you, Lord, to help us to serve you as you deserve to be served by us in coming days and weeks and months and years. We ask that you would help us to fight against that which remains of indwelling sin. We ask that you would help us to fight against the world and its desire to conform us to it, the devil and his attempts to ensnare us. We ask that we would fight vigorously uh, and uh, constantly and not just uh, periodically. We pray that we would, our motivation would be our gratitude and love, uh, gratitude to and love for you and for the Father who sent you, and for the Spirit who has applied to us your redemptive work and dwells within us. We pray that we would be motivated as we ponder this glorious salvation and life that is ours forevermore. And use us, we ask, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace 
who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.